You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. A quick run to the store. It can be successful or a miserable failure. I've been called on now and again to swing by the grocery store to grab something we need, or I myself have headed to the store, usually coming back from work, with something on my mind that we need to get. And I found for me, I need to make a list or else the simple trip to the store can turn out bad. Me returning home without the very thing I sent out to get. Perhaps it's because as I drove to the store, I started thinking about other things I should get, or perhaps it's because I've been lured in by other deals or snacks or displays there in the store, stocking up on things I did not intend to get. And if I don't have a list, I can head back to the checkout counter, bag it, pay it, load to the car, return the cart and drive home, having neglected to get the very thing I set out to get in the very first place. The very reason I went to the store to begin with. Without writing it down, it somehow slips my mind and as good as my intentions are, I fail out the task at hand. Coming up empty, usually meaning a return trip to the store or at least a lot of grace from my wife. It's like the clip I used to watch on the Sesame Street growing up about the boy going to the store for a loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. If you're a kid of the 70s or 80s, you might remember that. He repeated the list mentally the whole way to the store, but his mental list didn't cut it. Well, while forgetting the top item on the list is not a major deal when we're going to the grocery store, albeit an inconvenience, forgetting that Jesus is the main thing in all the universe, well, that's a bigger deal. For the Colossian church, there were influencers coming in whose skewed teachings were diminishing who Jesus was, taking away from his preeminence. And Paul, writing from prison in Rome, is greatly concerned that the junk that's being offered to the Colossian church would draw them away from Jesus. So Paul is making a list and putting Jesus at the top so that they don't forget his centrality to their faith and their lives and to the gospel and to all of the universe, lest they go through the motions and shop the aisles of all that was being offered in the philosophies of this world and come home with a ton of junk rather than the very thing they need, more of Jesus. As we saw in the last podcast, Paul had prayed for this church, praying that they would know and fulfill God's will with wisdom and knowledge and spiritual understanding, that they would walk in a way that fully pleased God, receiving strength to live the Christian faith and have patience in all they endured and long-suffering with all those around them, and that their hearts would be filled with worship as they thank the Lord for qualifying them, even though we are all disqualified. On this episode, Paul is making a list for us of all the things about Jesus that cannot be overlooked, neglected, or forgotten in an effort that we always lay hold of the very thing we came for, and that is more of Jesus. We take a look at Colossians 1, verses 13 through 18. So Paul emerges from the prayer that we looked at last time with this exclamation of a great truth worthy of noting in verses 13 and 14. He writes, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. God has delivered us. Delivery has taken on new meaning in recent years. I mean, we have had pizza delivery for a long time. Many a weekend night at the Gary house growing up, we called for pizza and had some teenage delivery guy or gal bring it right to the door. But now, 
delivery is something many of us have gotten used to in our on-demand world. We have Amazon Prime, of course. I ordered protein powder with just a few clicks the other night because I was running low and someone brought it to my door last night. All I had to do was open the door and open the box. Or all the delivery services that took off even more than they already were with COVID. Services like DoorDash or Grubhub, someone picking up lunch or dinner for you and bringing it to the office or the house. Such a convenience. Delivery. It is a convenience because someone else is doing it. Someone else does all the work, doing something you can't do or won't do. God has delivered us, a delivery service that was impossible for us to do. Though we may have tried through our works or religiosity or being good or our rule following or our legalism, but it never worked. We found ourselves still trapped in sin and death, which is why the Lord had to deliver us. The word there, delivered, in the Greek comes from a word that has the idea of a current. Imagine a riptide in the ocean or something pulling you away, leading and directing you to move from one place to another. And this is more than the lazy river at your local water park. This deliverance moves you and rescues you, bringing you to safety. You were so stuck that it wasn't even funny, so better than any Baywatch lifeguard or some other life ring being thrown our way could have taken us out and and pulled us to safety. Oh, how often we find ourselves stuck in life, overpowered, overwhelmed, under-resourced, and we need God to deliver us. The psalmist knew this oh so well and was relieved that God could and did deliver. Writing in Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust. Finding such comfort in all God was able to be and become in the current trials and overwhelming currents and tides of life and the world that were overwhelming. Or Psalm 40, verse 17, when the psalmist realized his true predicament and state, writing, But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Waiting upon the Lord because the psalmist had reached his own end and desperate for the Lord to intervene. And again, desperate in Psalm 70, verse 5, for God to intervene, writing, But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. What a comfort in those times to cry out to God, our deliverer, a speedy, on-time deliverer. Just what, though, specifically does Paul want them to remember in regard to deliverance? That God brought us out. As he says in verse 13, in that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Deliverance from the power of darkness. It's a universal theme that permeates all of our culture. Light versus darkness, good versus evil. Look at any mega film franchise, Marvel, Star Wars, any of those. It's the underlying theme most of the time, light overcoming darkness. But it is not fiction when it comes to our life. God had to deliver us from the power of darkness because, well, we were under the power of darkness. The struggle with darkness we see in entertainment is a fictitious presentation of a real conflict, as the darkness and all the power in opposition to God and and who he is, all the rebellion and wickedness that serves Satan rather than God, had us captive, stuck, trapped, imprisoned. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled and sold themselves and all of mankind into slavery, Mankind has been under the realm of darkness. 
John writes about this at the end of his first epistle in chapter 5. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world, well, they lie under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world lying under the sway of the wicked one. There's that current that riptide that we need to be delivered from, just going along with the flow and all the devil's plans to puppet us and use us for his purposes. When Jesus is facing off with the religious leaders in John 8, he confronts them with this. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. They were deceived because they were under the influence of another, of Satan, serving the kingdom of darkness and all of its purposes. And we too, we need to be delivered. It's something that we cannot do or step away from. See how many times in the Gospels, Jesus had to set people free from demonic activity. They were doing what they did not necessarily want or were even aware of doing. And while I don't think most people are demon-possessed in the world today, there's a deception, a numbness, an ignorance, a blindness that we are under before we come to know Jesus Christ until God delivers us and sets us free. Paul telling the church in 2 Corinthians, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God shining a light on our dark, miserable state and delivering us out of it. It's interesting to look back on our lives before we came to know Jesus and to see now the lies that we believed or the bondages that we were in and the puppets we may have been, how choices and actions and decisions may have hurt us or others as well. Fulfilling the purposes of the enemy, who, as Jesus said, robbed from us, whose whole purpose was to steal and to kill and to destroy, a true thief. Thank the Lord for Jesus who came that we may have life and that we may have it more abundantly. It's sad to watch a world buying into the lies of the enemy that tells people there is nothing they need to be delivered from, that affirms all choices, all decisions, all lifestyles, all philosophies, and celebrates and accommodates them with no push or urge to seek deliverance, something that God can and will do for those who throw up their hands and surrender and come to their senses to be delivered by the work of the Holy Spirit. Such an approach robs God of the opportunity to show them his power to deliver. If there's nothing to be delivered from, well, there's no cry out to a deliverer. It diminishes the cross and Jesus and our need for him, and I believe is the deception of the enemy to keep people in bondage. This is something Paul wants to remind the Colossians, because the philosophies of the world were drawing them away from their need for Jesus, their need from deliverance, and their memories of having been delivered, something Paul did not want them to forget.
And it wasn't just what we were delivered from, it's what happens next that is pretty remarkable. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, and here's the next part, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. I love that word, conveyed us. Some translations say, translated us. The Greek is methistemi, to transfer, to move from one place to another. I think of a conveyor belt, rapidly moving something from one place to another, taking you from point A to point B, an express transfer. Or I think of Star Trek and Scotty beaming them up back to the ship, being removed from one place and transported to another. Philip may have experienced something like this after he had baptized the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. It writes, Now when they came out of, up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Not sure if there was some supernatural first century beaming up going on there in Acts chapter 8, but you've probably felt like Philip before, doing one thing and then finding yourself somewhere else wondering, what just happened and how did I get here? Well, for Paul and the believer, we have all been conveyed, transferred, delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of His love, plopped out of one and placed into the other. That's a true how-did-I-get-here moment, to be brought out of darkness into the kingdom of light, no time to adjust the eyes, pulled out, and born again. It's interesting, the word there, conveyed or transferred, it can also mean to depart from life, to die. And in some ways, that's exactly what has happened to us when we believed. That's how we got out of the kingdom of darkness and the power of darkness. We died to the old life, the old life of darkness. We were crucified to the old man, and we were born anew, resurrected in the kingdom of God. We have died and gone to heaven. How amazing that God has invited us in, made the way open for us to bring us out of bondage and into his perfect kingdom. That is something that Jesus has done, and Paul puts it at the top of the shopping list for these Colossians, because salvation and redemption and resurrection are something other philosophies cannot and will not accomplish. All the muddy things the Colossians were wading through, the various philosophies and practices and teachings, none of them could do what Jesus had done. None could forgive. None could set free. None could promise eternity. Only Jesus could. And by his grace, we have been conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The Son of His love. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is the Son of His love. We look at Jesus, and we see the motivation and expression of how much God loved us. And that is something that Paul wants the Colossians and us to remember, that the gospel, the whole foundation of Christianity, it's about love, God's longing for a relationship with us, a desire that we would not be lost for eternity, something his heart cannot rest with, which is why Jesus told us parables about a woman who had lost a coin, and she frantically turns over the whole house looking for it because she can't rest until she finds it because of how much it means to her. Or the shepherd, who cannot write off the one sheep that has gone astray, but needs to head out in search of it, the most committed of rescue missions, leaving the other 99 because the flock is not complete with even just one missing. The gospel is born out of love. 
and the philosophies and teachings and alternatives being taught in Colossae, they were just that. Philosophies, intellectual persuasions, codes of conduct, esoteric musings, but none of these things led to a relationship. None of those found any way to satisfy man's deepest need and desire to be loved. I remember the early days of the church in Slovenia, and we didn't have a building yet, and we would pretty much meet wherever. We met in kids' bedrooms, or on a hilltop on a blanket, or in the basement of someone's apartment complex. It was pretty rugged sometimes. One of our favorite spots, though, in the summer was a stone table in the park. It was off to one side of the park, so we were away from most distractions, and there were benches going around this stone table most of the way, concrete supports and slatted wood for the benches. And we could get between 10 and 15 of us around it, give or take. So there we were. I'm pretty sure it was a Sunday morning and we were doing our thing, having worship at the stone table in the park, probably using a boombox with batteries, singing along to a mixtape of worship songs my sister had probably made. And then we opened up the Bibles and had our time together in the Word. It was simple, but it was church in the fullest sense of the word. And that day, a woman quite a bit older than most of us came walking by. A bit older, which wasn't too hard to do since most of us were in our teens or 20s. And she kind of stopped at a distance and watched what we were up to. She got a bit closer and then she spoke up, interrupting the study to ask what we were up to. Well, one of our translators invited her to join us and she sat down to do so. This middle-aged woman there at the table with us listening intently to the study. And I remember she would sit there with this focused look, almost as if she was peering down the length of her nose, somewhat stoic, but always very focused. Well, this woman's name was Jožica. It's the Slovene equivalent to Josephine. And at the end, as we moved into discussion, she began to speak up. And we could tell quickly that she was definitely seeking spirituality, but she was pretty far off at least from biblical truth. Lots of New Age philosophy, Eastern mysticism. I mean, the lady had definitely been doing a lot of searching and had come away with a ton of junk in there. And so began our ministry to Yojitsa. She would show up from time to time, listen intently, but then share her own views on things which were always way out there. But she was always focused, peering down the length of her nose as she looked to be discerning all the spiritual talk going on. It was hard to understand just what she believed because she believed so many things. And even with a translator trying to explain it, we were all a bit lost. Though she always matter-of-factly tried to explain the enlightened spirituality she had discovered, something I think she wanted us to all become privy to. I can't remember how long it was. I feel like it was just off and on for a year or two. We'd run into her this city. She'd meet us at the park. I remember at some point she even came to the apartment where we started having our Bible studies inside when it got too cold outside. But at one point, Yojitsa asked to meet with me and my friend Matei and discuss some things. And we agreed to meet at a cafe and she began to guide the conversation. I think it became apparent there that she was trying to convert us to her philosophies, that while she seemed to appreciate our spirituality, that she was somehow enlightened and wanted to impart to these two young missionary guys the fullness of this spiritual truth that we had not yet come to recognize. And so at that meeting at the cafe, there was some discussion, some verses, some sketches and drawings even, as she tried to explain these spiritual things that she was talking about. But it seemed like we weren't going anywhere. And even with Yojitsa's explanations, I still was very confused as to what exactly she believed. 
I remember, though, there were like eight concentric rings that she had drawn, drawn, and these were like realms that we were supposed to pass through, apparently, and at least that's what her sketches pointed to, but it really made no sense to me. And then there was a break in the conversation, and I felt compelled to say something. I said something along the lines of, Yojitsa, this is all very interesting, what you have shared with us. And even these drawings of these eight emanations, it sounds very profound, and it seems to be very, very important to you. But in all of our conversations, there's one thing that I have not heard about. In the last year or two years, however long it had been, this has not come up. And, and that is the things that you're sharing with me, I've yet to hear that God loves me. That's what I find in the gospel. And that's what's drawn me to Jesus and the gospel. That God loves me so much. That God is a personal God, that God is not just some energy or some life force out there, that God is not some philosophy or some eight concentric rings of emanations, but that God loves me so much that he gave his only son for me to die for me so that I can be forgiven and have eternal life. That is what we all need. We all need a relationship with God and to be able to know and experience God's love. Your sketches and drawings and explanations, they don't tell me a thing about love. And they don't need lead me to love at all, which is the one thing that I need. And with that, Yojitsa started to cry. Well, Matei and I looked at one another. We hadn't meant to make her cry, but it seemed like that was the moment of what the motion was really saying, because that truth had obviously struck a chord with her. In all her spirituality and searching, she had not experienced the love of God. She had not experienced a personal God. She had not come to know a relationship with God. And this is what the gospel offered and something that she was desperately missing and apparently seeking. It's this reminder that Paul wants to give the Colossian believers that no matter what alternate forms of spirituality were being presented at Colossae, only the gospel of Jesus Christ could deliver us from the power of darkness and convey us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And reminding them and us about how important Jesus is, is something Paul is not backing down from, as he goes on in verses 15 through 18. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Notice the resume that Paul writes for Jesus as he continues to try to remind the Colossians that Jesus is the best candidate for all that we're looking for. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Having created all things, he's in the first place and holds all things together. And the church is and should be all about him. Anything else or anyone else was just an imposter, inferior, and not worth their time. Let's take a look back at some of these things Paul lists. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word there for image is icon. The image, the likeness, the representation. I think about icons that we have on our computer on the desktop. Those small symbols or colorful logos that represent some software or app you may have on your computer. 
If you click on the icon, it opens up the full program, though the icon itself is just a representation, just an image representing that program. But opening it unleashes all the code and the intricate pro programming. Those things are behind the scenes. We don't normally see them, but the icon is the key to accessing that. Jesus is the icon, the image of God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Everything that Jesus is represents everything of God. Because, well, God is invisible. We can't see him. He's spirit. And finite man cannot be in the presence of the infinite God. So God came in the flesh, the icon of God, the image of God. And as we examine the life of Jesus, as we look at Jesus, as we stare at Jesus as seen in the Gospels, we see for the first time, really, the heart of God for his creation. Jesus revealing God, God's compassion, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. That God was walking among us as a man, finally revealing how he interacts with us as a divine being. So Jesus is central to knowing God. His final night with his disciples before going to the cross, this conversation took place between them. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Later on, John, who was there that night when Jesus spoke to Philip, wrote in chapter 5 of his first epistle, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. This is a challenge from Paul to them. If they begin to ignore Jesus or diminish Jesus, then they cannot see God. Because Jesus is the key to knowing God. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the icon on the desktop that they need to click on in order to see God. Which is why it's important to discern what people say about Jesus. Because if someone is off in their understanding of who Jesus is, then their faith is not sound. So it is interesting that these next verses have been toyed with by certain groups or views and lead to a false gospel because who Jesus is has been tainted with. When Paul writes, the firstborn over all creation, some have interpreted this to mean that Jesus is created and that he's not God, not eternal, taking the word firstborn to mean that he was born and then everything else was born after him. Firstborn in the ancient world and to the Jews was a big deal. It meant the one with the authority in the family. Those born after were to submit to this authority. So firstborn pointed to authority and position, not necessarily to the birth certificate. Remember in Genesis how Jacob the younger got the birthright over Esau the older? Jacob then, quote, became firstborn, even though no birthdays had been switched around, no documents or ID cards had been falsified. The word here for firstborn is protokos. Ancient rabbis referred to Yahweh himself, God himself, as firstborn. And truly, they understood that God had no beginning. He was not born. By calling him firstborn, they spoke of his position and his authority. Firstborn could also be a messianic title in those days, as they waited for God to send one to deliver them. So Jesus being the firstborn, he fulfilled this messianic role. 
And Paul wants to clarify to make sure that they understand that in calling Jesus the firstborn, he is not implying that Jesus was a created being. We see in verses 16 and 17, and notice how many times he says all things. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist, all things. Now, it's an ancient heresy that God created Jesus, and then Jesus created everything else. It's called Arianism, going back to the 300s when Arius taught it. It's the belief that the Son of God did not always exist, but was begotten within time by God the Father. Therefore, Jesus was not co-eternal with God the Father. Arianism holds that the Son is distinct from the Father and therefore subordinate to him. So basically, Arianism didn't allow for the Trinity, but that Jesus is just a subordinate of God. We still see this lingering around today in newer forms. The Jehovah Witnesses have gotten around it by adding to the verse in their New World Translation when they say, For by him all, and they add the word other, things, adding the word other there, were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, implying that God created Jesus and then Jesus created everything else. But remember, Paul wrote four times, all things, all things were created by Jesus because Jesus is God. And Paul articulates as well that Jesus created things seen and unseen. There are interesting implications in this as angels are unseen. And there was an angel cult in the area of Colossae. But the message Paul has is Jesus created it all. So worshiping anything else other than Jesus is inferior. Why worship the creation when you can worship the creator? That's the question Paul asks in the first chapter of Romans as well, when he examines the sinful and fallen tendencies of man apart from God. Writing in verse 25 that man exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And God gives us over to that eventually. Everyone worships. Anthropologists will point out that all cultures worship. Atheism is a fairly modern construct. And in essence, atheism, it's not true because man has just turned to materialism or hedonism to worship. Worshipping stuff and self and pleasure rather than some divine deity. But everyone worships something. And the tendency is toward idols, inferior things rather than the living God. So for the Colossians, worshiping Jesus was better than worshiping the unseen angels because Jesus created the unseen. It's amazing how much we have discovered about the unseen world in modern times. As scientists have learned about technologies for microscopes and telescopes that they've developed, things previously not seen they can now see. And they've been there all along, and Jesus created them. Think about the molecular level. Paul says in him, in Jesus, all things consist Even the atom, each atom having a certain number of protons and electrons. Protons, positively charged uh, particles in the nucleus. Electrons, negatively charged, rotating in orbit around them. Interesting thing about the protons, all tightly packed in the nucleus, they are all positively charged. If you learned anything in elementary school science class, it was that when you had a magnet, like charges repelled and opposites attract. So how is it that an atom can stick together when the nucleus is packed with like-charged particles? Jesus knows, because he created it all, seen and unseen. He holds those things together. In him, as Paul writes, all things consist. And when Paul writes, all things were created through him and for him, this should remind us all of why we exist in the first place. 
you and I were created for him. Not for ourselves, not to achieve our own goals, not to find our own way in life, not to make a name for ourselves, not for our own pleasure or our own pursuits or our own entertainment. All things, including us, were created for him. Man is not the center of the universe. You and I are not the center of our universe. All things were created through him and for him. He has a throne and he still sits on it today. And whether individuals or society or cultures or nations acknowledge it or not, it doesn't matter at all. All things were created through him and for him. As we wrap up this section today, Paul's wanting the Colossian believers and us as well to make sure Jesus is at the top of the list of all things. That the newest thing or newest distraction or the newest trend does not usurp Jesus's position and cause us to forget why we came in the first place. As I've often done at the grocery store, if I don't make a list before I go, and the Colossian church was losing sight of this. Susceptible to the convincing and persuasive tides of the day, So Paul crowns Jesus once again in these verses and puts him at the head of the class, the head of the church, writing, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. With Jesus' resurrection, we have been brought back from the dead as well, called to walk in a new life, not in the old lives we once lived, new creations in Christ. And Paul was puzzled that they were losing sight of Jesus because doing so could only lead them astray and how quickly too. Paul places a proverbial exclamation point at the end of verse 18 when he writes that in all things he may have the preeminence. Once again he says all things, nothing excluded. The word preeminence at the end, it means to be first, to have first place. It's a word that Paul wanted the church in Colossae to meditate on. Jesus was to be first, to have first place. In fact, ironically so, this is the only time the word is used in the New Testament, not shared anywhere else in the Greek. There were times in the Old Testament where God expressed this to his people. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When God expresses this, he's not some insecure deity needing the accolades and attention of mortal man. It's because his rightful place is to have the place of preeminence in our lives. And if we're honest, how often we relegate him to a subordinate position, have him sit in the back seat, move him to the periphery, onto the sidelines. We don't shove him out completely we do rearrange things a bit more to our liking and our convenience. And if we reflect on it truly, how is that going for us? How are we faring as individuals, as families, as churches, as nations, with him on the sidelines, cast away from his preeminence, without him as the head of all things? For now, Jesus complies with our wishes, but he is the preeminent one, and he will take his rightful place and we will see and know that he is God. So Lord, we confess our tendencies to be influenced by this world. Though delivered from the kingdom of darkness, the times that we lose sight of just how grateful we should be and how gracious you have been in conveying us into your kingdom. Lord, we acknowledge that our lives are held together 
only by your grace. And apart from you, that we can do nothing. God, it is apparent that we do not always keep you at the forefront. And that the idols of life, Lord, they creep in and keep you from your preeminence. And we confess and we declare that you and you alone, Jesus, are what life is all about. You're why we exist. And our lives are for your purposes and for your glory. Forgive us, Lord for where we've gotten off track and lead us back to a place where all things are ordered in our lives under your authority. Jesus, you alone are worthy of the highest place. And Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith and you would give us opportunities and you'd empower us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to be a part of seeing people being ripped away from the kingdom of darkness, Lord, and conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of your love, Lord, delivered from darkness and brought into the kingdom of your Son. And Lord, if there's anyone listening right now who does not know you, who's not born again, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just pierce their heart, that there would be a, a burning inside of them that leads them and shows them, Lord, that they do not know you. And right now they are under the influence of darkness. And all it takes is crying out, crying out to Jesus Christ to be saved, Lord, and you will deliver them and you will convey them into the kingdom of the Son of your love because you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, they will not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, do that work now. Do that work in our world. Do that work in our lives. Do that work with our friends, with our family, those who don't know you, Lord. We desire to see that work of deliverance. And Lord, we thank you for your grace and for showing us your love first and proving it to us on the cross. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.